I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, welcome back to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm Sarah Trott, and I'm here today with Esther Gallagher, my co-host, and with a special guest, Riza Tanner. Riza, we are so happy to have her today. She is an experienced doula, educator, yoga instructor, body worker, parent mentor, and mother. She's been practicing and studying yoga for 17 years. She's an advanced birthing from within mentor and as a doula employs various methods and techniques to support, inform, and comfort women and their families throughout the birth process. So welcome, Riza. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'd love to just hear a little bit of an introduction uh, from you and hear more about what you do. Um, Well, you said a lot already. Um, (laughs) I think you got some of it from my website, which is currently being updated. So I have been a yoga instructor for about 20 years. Oh, wow. And very interested in not just physical health and hormones, but embodiment. Um, so bringing mindfulness together for mind body connection and healing. I have been a doula for about 10 years now and an educator for most of that time. And for the last few years, I've been a life coach focusing on healers, helpers, and mamas because we're all working together. And I'm really passionate about supporting new families as a starting place to tend to the future, to tend to a vision for a more sustainable society where women feel more confident, they feel more embodied, they're using their voices and they're able to make their valuable contributions. I love that. And I'm also a mother myself. (laughs) Excellent qualification right there. (laughs) So Risa, I would love it if we talked more about how you actually work when you're working with this process of life coaching doulas and mamas and just give us a nice overview and even any number of details uh, about how you do your work. Well, as a life coach, I'm using many of the tools that I cultivated as a doula for the last 10 years As you know, going through the birth process, and this isn't just labor and birthing a child, it's the preparation as part of the journey. And the preparation for some women is nine months or it's last minute right before when it starts to become real right before they go into labor. But for other women, this has been a lifelong dream and the seeds of birthing something or mothering something start very early in their lives, or maybe their pregnancy journey didn't start right away. And they were thinking about it for a long time, deliberating over it or trying to get pregnant for a long time. And I think that when we speak about mothers, the way that I'm thinking about it is also an archetype. 
to mother something. So women can relate to this who have not given birth to a human being, but have given birth to a vision or to a project or to their art. So I'm very interested in seeing how we evolve and we transform and our identities shift. And one of the things that often happens in this shift of identity is we fall apart to be put back together. And there's a false belief in our culture that you're supposed to do this all by yourself. And even for people who don't buy into it, they may not have the kind of support that they really need um, to feel safe enough to fall apart so that they can come back together. And I came into yoga through the fitness store. So I have a background as a fitness instructor, um, even though I haven't activated it in a really long time. And just learning about muscles, like if you want to make a muscle stronger, you work it out and there are micro tears. And then it's during that rest period of rebuilding that we actually get stronger. And so I like to create the space for women to do that. And there's several themes that seem to be coming up because I work with so many moms and I work with doulas who are moms and doulas who are not moms to support them. And I think that a lot of us are working with expectations that we have of ourselves and the gap between what we expect in our idealism and what our reality is. And that leads to a lot of suffering, leads to emotional exhaustion, burnout. And I'm hoping to restructure the conversation so that there, we can change those expectations And I'm definitely an idealist. So when I say realistic expectations, that doesn't mean that's where we stay. Um, But Mm -hmm. creating some soft space, maybe a a safe container for that rebuilding to take place and that falling apart to take place. So I've witnessed it for years as women are raw and vulnerable giving birth. And then I started to see that the same trends were happening outside of birth in women's lives. Yeah, it's a wonderful, I, I like the muscle metaphor because it's so simple. It's a wonderful, wonderful overview. I I know I can look back on my 57 years and go, oh yeah, that happened and that happened and, and it happened in that way. I needed to go through a major life transition and part of the experience meant disintegrating and then reintegrating into the next permutation of Esther. So um, I think that's really fantastic what you're doing, of course. Thank you. Yeah. And being a mom, I've been witness to that too with my child. And so in child development, we see that children often fall apart. They have a regression Mm -hmm. before they take a developmental leap. And we give them the compassion and the space to do that, hopefully. So my desire is for us to start giving that to ourselves and giving it to the moms and giving it to the grown-ups, because mm-hmm. we have inner children inside us too. Yeah. Would you, um, I, whenever I talk about this subject, and, and especially in reference to child development, part of what I experience, part of what I think is maybe a layer of truth in all of that is that often when we're parenting 
and we come to a developmental juncture with our children, not only is there a really unsettling place where if we might not have been met at the time of our own developmental transition at that age our child might be, but also if we're really just not well-resourced at the time that our children are going to be going through that developmental period. It just really can be rough in a way that it wouldn't be. <laughs> might be rough anyway, but it might not be so rough if we're not so, you know, if we were well-resourced. And by that, I even mean something as simple as getting enough nutrition, getting that wonderful exercise in the form of yoga or whatever is really nourishing for us and feeling um, our embodiment in a resourced way. Would you agree with that, Riza? Do you feel like that's touching on part of what you're trying to hold for parents? It's definitely an aspect of it. Um, and I, there's a book that I recommend to a lot of people who ask about parenting books, and I'm not into the how-to. I'm not interested in telling people how to parent. Obviously, I'm interested in people supporting their children in ways that are compassionate and support their growth. But my approach is if we resource the parents, they're going to be able and we give them the tools they need. They'll be able to figure out their way, mm -hmm. their path. And that really is the feminine, being able to listen to intuition instead of experts and allow that inner guidance and the connection with that child because that expert has never had that child before and the history of those parents our issues definitely come up when our children reach ages that were difficult for us i've experienced that in my own family and had many aha moments my mother her mom had her leg amputated due to diabetes my grandmother um when my mom was 12 gracious and wow. That is the exact same age where things got difficult, probably hormonally also, when I was growing up for my mom. And there's a great book about this. So parenting from the inside out. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if you want to learn how to parent, work on your own stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely agree with you about getting triggered. But not everyone has time for reading a book, whether it's in pregnancy or postpartum, the biggest myth for me as a new mom was I thought, oh, with all those hours breastfeeding, I'll read all these parenting books. Um, and that did not happen. <laughs> well, lucky um, for you, but I think the <laughs> because I'm there's right. so much out there that I think we would probably agree just is toxic. <laughs> so yeah, and it creates a culture of shoulds and guilt yeah. and shame and blame. And I'm really wanting to eradicate guilt, blame, and shame in mothers because it doesn't help them. Those are, those are secondary emotions that stop them from listening in. Um, so I think working on their own stuff and getting as resourced as possible, but oftentimes when especially new moms are most challenged, the last thing they need is someone giving them a list of self-care things that they should be doing, like getting more sleep and nutrition. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out ways to make sure it happens, that it's not paternalistic and coming from the expert doing it. It's it's co-created and there's a partnership. But moms aren't left with a list of things they should be doing, like you should eat more greens. How about some yeah. more kale and kombucha and quinoa? Like that doesn't empower them. Yeah. 
Speaking as a new mom, that's a really powerful message, I have to say. I know that when I found out I was pregnant for the first time, I was so thrilled at the prospect and everything was going kind of exactly how I wanted and I really can't complain. But I do remember feeling a lot of pressure and stress to suddenly kind of research and know everything and prepare. And it's overwhelming. The amount of books and advice and things that are kind of directed at soon-to-be first-time parents. <laughs> and so I really like this idea, this notion of saying, you know, no one has been a parent to your baby and you do know what's best and it's okay to listen to yourself. You don't necessarily have to listen to everyone else, right? Because I, I, I wonder if there are some new parents who get lost in the mire of advice and, and feel like if they don't do it according to some method or some book, then they're doing something wrong. Definitely. And I teach childbirth classes and the goal is not to tell people how to do things. And at first that's disappointing for some of my students. I want to give them <laughs> yeah. the information and the initiation, right? So the, the the experiences that are going to help them tap into their own inner wisdom, but sometimes they, they need some information. We can't leave people hanging, mm -hmm. but they're already given so much information. So more of my role is to help them get to the insights of how the information works for them and what works for them. So it's a little sexy to say, I know the map. I know the way. If you do these steps that I tell you, then everything's going to go perfect. But while it, it may sell books, but it's an actual lie. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is sexy to think that people have the answer. And yeah. so I think a lot of childbirth education is about giving the answer on the map. If you do these breathing techniques, you're going to have an orgasm while you give birth. And then people do those exercises. And it, it once in a while it works. I will tell you, there have been people who have orgasmic births, but they're a small minority. And so the rest of the people are left feeling like someone failed me. They made a false promise and I was let down. Often they take it on themselves as I was a fool to believe them. And this isn't just about birth or I did it wrong, or I should have done it more. Mm -hmm. I should have done it more religiously. I hear that a lot. I'm like, not enough. I didn't do enough of that thing. <laughs> yeah. Or somebody didn't. It's you know? heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. It's terrible. Esther, you gave me great advice uh, as my birth doula, which was I said I said that I wanted to write down my, you know, my my birth plan, and you said call it intention, <laughs> because mm -hmm. which is a subtle but important difference because. You know, my personality is such that if I say I have a plan, I want to execute that plan. And if I don't, it feels like failure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so calling it an intention was a lot healthier for me because if things didn't turn out exactly the way I'd imagined, it was okay. Yeah, because you couldn't really imagine what you were really going to be doing. <laughs> right? Like it was different once you were right. doing it. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I really, really appreciate this rise. I, I just resonate with it. And um, um, I mean, I know as a postpartum doula, like I, I'm pretty strong with my clients about like, keep this really simple, eat, sleep, pee, you know, really simple. And, and I know that comes off as it should. In the meantime, I hope to be showing them what that means rather than just saying, here's the prescription and walking away. Um, and right. likewise with getting to know their babies, like, you know, put away the five S's and see who your baby is. Um, you know, it's very tempting to think that 
there are, there's a list of things to do and you just do those things. And once they're done, you have a baby you can tolerate, (laughs) but uh, I think it's, it's a little more interesting to just be curious about who the baby is Yes, and and more fun, challenging, way more challenging. (laughs) Well, I, I love that you said the curious and you know, what you're doing is you're co-creating the situation with your clients where these things like good nutrition and better sleep can take place instead of leaving them with a list. And I think that we're looking at childbirth and postpartum as, as a template for our lives. Um, so this could happen elsewhere, but the way that we prepare something that really is going into the deep feminine, um, which is also undervalued in our culture, we really value the, more masculine patriarchal way of doing things. That's how we get ahead. It's more linear, ordered, organized, there's steps to it. And so then we take that and we put that on top of something that is the absolute feminine, right? It's about softness and opening and juiciness and transformation and fluidity and flow. And we start, we start from the beginning to prepare for it in a way that fits the masculine model. And I love information. So I've done all the same things and I'm not saying the masculine is bad. I'm saying that we need to balance the masculine and feminine, but we go into it. We go into classrooms to learn about it. (laughs) We're getting our left brain ready. We're taking notes because we want to catch everything. We do our research with Dr. Google. We read books that have codified things like you brought up the five S's, which drives me Mm -hmm. crazy by the way. Um, because those five S's become tools. It's supposed to be the, to have the happiest baby on the block. Um, but really what it is is to make your baby quiet. And people think that a quiet baby is a good baby. It's not much that's interesting about that, but it's also nothing true about that because you can apply any number of rules to a human and they won't work. <laughs> God. As much as we still have all these books that try to tell us contrary. Yes. And that's the thing you said before that you brought up about getting triggered. One of the things that is a trigger for a lot of people is crying, babies crying. And it is designed to keep them safe and to, I mean, as a mother, cut right through your heart so that you take care of your baby. Because as we evolved, if we put our baby down to go do some work, there could have been a predator there. So, so I really do get that. And we're hormonally primed, but at the same time, a lot of our discomfort with crying comes from not being allowed to fully express our feelings and being told our feelings are wrong or they should be different. Yeah. And you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't avoid, hugging aunt Sally, like, you know, that's silly, or you should respect police officers, like all the things that we've been taught. And when they go contrary to our inner knowing, we shut it out so that we, as women, especially don't make waves, don't piss anybody off. And so when a baby is expressing these feelings, it can be overwhelming. It could be flooding, especially if that's something that you were taught you weren't allowed to do yourself. Well, and I, I'll just mention that, um, in the era that I gave birth, um, there was of course the strong patriarchal kind of upbringing on the one hand where I was told unequivocally, like, don't do this emotionally and do do that emotionally. But also 
around the time when I was giving birth, there was a whole kind of um, uh, (laughs) woo-woo psychology that said, you know, if you're experiencing anything negative, you're going to pass that on to your baby. Well, what do you do with that? You know, it wasn't subtle. (laughs) So are you both saying in a way that when we listen to our babies cries and we comfort them and we don't try to shush them, but we let them cry and we give them the comfort they're asking for, we're setting them up to learn as they get older that their feelings are valid and they're deserving of comfort and love? Absolutely. And Sarah, I would say that if a parent is distressed by a baby's cry, that's natural and normal. The answer to our distress isn't to freak out or try to shut the baby down or try to shut ourselves down, but really come fully to that relationship. Oh, I'm feeling so sad that my baby's feeling so distressed and I'm, you know, like it's okay to, in other words, have your own feelings while this stuff is happening and not shut down and think that you have to be a robot that somehow fixes your baby. And I'm sure Riza has a much more sophisticated way of talking about this. <laughs> oh, no, I, se- I, I second what you said wholeheartedly. And that, you know, accepting our baby's cries is as important as accepting our own emotions and our own reactions to it. And we're going to have our feelings. And my message is that all feelings and even desires or wishes are okay. All feelings are okay. Um, They're all acceptable. And it's, you know, it's what we do afterwards that counts, but our feelings are our feelings and what we resist Mm -hmm. persists. And it either goes into shadow and hiding and to protect ourselves, we close ourselves off to a whole bunch of other emotions, which is like what Esther was describing as this flatness. Um, Or it starts to live in our tissues as tension and will show up in dreams or through anxiety. And if left really unchecked can manifest as illness. So I'm not saying that to freak anybody out, but what we do know is the same way that many women cope with labor comes in, in waves that usually don't last more than 60 to 90 seconds at the longest. The same thing with emotions, if we actually breathe into them and feel them. So it can feel scary because emotions can be overwhelming. It can be scary because we think it feels like they're going to last forever. But if we disengage from the story or the interpretation and just just engage with the feeling usually doesn't last more than 60 to 90 seconds and it starts to loosen its grip on us and i'd like to create the safe spaces where moms can do that sometimes they're really busy and their baby needs them or they need to step away for a minute um, before they can attend to their baby and that's totally okay but creating spaces where moms are not isolated and someone's telling them this is normal and you're okay. And it's okay to feel these feelings because what happens is we tend to judge ourselves for feeling the feelings that we have, the feelings that are just their emotions, their motion, they want to move through and we try to stop them so they don't get to move through, but we judge ourselves and that's what stops them. So we feel bad about feeling bad And I think it's difficult in our culture to be comfortable with contradiction. And I've spent a lot of time living abroad and working with people from different countries. And I think this is a very American 
to not live with contradiction and that you can be both absolutely in love with your baby and having a very hard time in that moment and wanting them to shut up really badly. We're, we're big enough containers to hold feelings that are contradictions and it's safe enough to feel that feeling without judging it. So the judge comes in to say, you shouldn't be feeling angry at your baby. So then you're feeling bad and you're feeling bad about feeling bad. And that's where suffering comes in. In Buddhism, they call that the second arrow. So the first arrow is how you're feeling, but then the second arrow is shooting yourself for feeling that. So just disengaging from that second arrow and taking the time to notice, notice in your body what's coming up when a baby's crying and just acknowledging it. And maybe later coming back to soothe yourself the same way you want to soothe that baby. I think sometimes when we hear a baby crying, we want to make them feel better. It's this desperation of, oh, you feel so sad. I want to make you feel better. The feeling that we have is to want to fix it and make them happy when maybe that's something that we experienced and we're giving that back to them when maybe, if I hear what you're saying correctly, is that maybe just letting our baby feel what they're feeling, letting us feel what we're feeling and being okay with that. Right. Not only that, but there's a process to every emotion. There's a physiological, emotional, social, spiritual process. So, you know, whatever comes in to the field that prompts one to feel a feeling, right, an emotional feeling, then has a trajectory, like it has a trajectory and the body needs to fully engage and fully realize and get to the end of that process. Rise was using the example of, you know, just giving birth. Like, you know, you have surge after surge after surge. They only last minutes, you know, at the most. And then there's between time. If you get hung up in any part of the surge in your mind, in your body, and you carry that through past when it was finished and resolved, there's a problem. But also, if something comes along in the midst of that surge to disrupt the flow of it, and we we all have those examples, (laughs) those of us who are birth doulas in hospital settings, you know, if you get in the middle of your baby's cry and say, this has to stop. Um, what would have been just a normal kind of arc of, gosh, I don't feel so good. Okay, I'm going to cry. Oh, I really like this. I'm going to really cry this out. And okay, I'm starting to feel a little better. I'm crying, crying, crying. And now I'm really finished, you know, and now I can move on. Um, You know, that that really disrupts the baby's process. That baby had to do that thing physiologically, emotionally, interactively with you and instead was getting blocked from doing that thing by a perfectly lovely intention, (laughs) which is that they feel better, right? It's hard to remember as a parent when our child is just apoplectic (laughs) that this isn't going to last forever. (laughs) Um, And that they are okay. And having been apoplectic a time or two, there's something really powerful in it and restorative even sometimes. Yeah. Raisa, can I ask you a little bit about something you mentioned earlier, this notion of disintegrating and then integrating, falling apart, and then coming back to give something, to sort of Mm -hmm. give something back? I think that 
it's happened multiple times and it's been really amazing to watch my child, even though I was a professional and I knew intellectually what was happening and I'd read so many books about attachment and development, seeing my child regress and like literally, I mean, even from the first one, first growth spurt around three weeks, um, where it seems like I can't, nothing is soothing my baby. My baby's not okay. My baby is my baby getting enough milk. What's happening. And then read just rereading that this is a normal growth spurt. And then seeing afterwards that something new happened. So really early that imprint was there and being able to witness it in my child um, reminded me that it's what we adults do also. I know for a lot of people, when they have their second child about to be born, their first child falls apart and they regress, whether it has to do with sleep or they had skills and suddenly they want to be treated like a baby. So those are some practical examples. I think, you know, for us women, it might be easier to relate to the archetype and the archetypal story um, deeply immersed in the birthing from within approach, which is one that uses narrative and storytelling and is overlaid on a more feminine version of the hero's Mm -hmm. journey. And if we look at that and look at the stages of preparation, descent, ordeal, and in the story that we use the oldest story is the story of Inanna. There's one of the oldest epic stories ever in the world from ancient Sumer, where the goddess of heaven and earth descends to the underworld because she hears the call and she does all her preparation. But when she goes down there, she's hung on a hook. She's disembodied. And she's there for a while. Um, and there's a beating of the drum above, you know, above the underworld calling her back, but she doesn't have the strength to come back. These allies need to be sent to bring her the food of life and the water of life so she can slowly get stronger. And she was, she was literally disembodied. And this is a metaphor for a lot of us, especially how we feel after birth. Our bodies have changed. What's inside our bodies have shifted. Our brains change in pregnancy. When you're, when you're pregnant, MRI studies have shown that the brain can shrink up to 5% in size. So people make jokes about the mommy brain, but what's actually happening is it's like a chrysalis and it's rearranging itself. So it's like the caterpillar turning into a butterfly that we have to develop superpowers. We have to allocate new areas for brain growth. And then the brain goes back to its normal size within a few months of the birth. So we are, we're turning to putty just like the butterfly in order to grow. And our wounds are also our sources of growth, our sources of repair, where we can let the light out, but we have to attend to them first. So I don't know if I'm being concrete enough with my examples, but I want to give more of a metaphor that women can see themselves and it allows for recognition and self-acceptance and knowing that this is part of the journey. It's exactly where they need to be because they are growing. I also like giving a name to this experience for women and actually being aware of that, that throughout our lives, we ourselves, not just our children are going through periods of regression and then taking two steps forward. And 
I think I like, I think I just want to keep that in mind that when I go through something of feeling like I just, I know something's not right. I feel because I can recognize that feeling. I know, I know what it's like inside of myself to feel like something's just a little bit off, but being able to put a name on that and think, well, I'm growing. I'm, this is okay. I can be patient because I know I will get through this and I'm going to feel great. And I'm going to feel on top of the world. I just need to give it some time. It's also holistic. It's looking at the big picture. Um, when we're in it, it's, we can't, when you're in it, you can't see above you, but we can take those opportunities to recognize when we are above it, the big picture so that when we're in it again, we can recall that. And you talked about her merging and Sarah, when you said you wanted to name it, I was like, well, if I had a word for it, it would be emergence. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Like being aware. Are there tools that you talk to women about using when going through these stages? I'm sure we both have a lot of tools. <laughs> well, I think for me, it start it it starts with a foundational understanding as well as tools. So mindfulness is the biggest tool, and mindfulness is a practice, right? It's not a performance. It's something we continue to go back to, and there's a lot of ways to do that. And I'm more interested in what already works for people than giving them a prescribed way. So that's also having a, not letting, making sure people know that I have their back and they're being attended to. So I'm using my intuition of how much to step in or not, but it's also a more feminine way where it's not rigid rules of this is the tool for everybody. I do have a particular tool that evolves from applying mindfulness understandings in a very practical way for women in birth. And I started to use this as an everyday tool in my own life and with my coaching clients. And it's super simple. And I just made a little um, series of videos about it. It's called POCO, which means small, right? Or little in Spanish. And part of it is about perspective, right? So whatever is happening often feels really big. It feels so big that it's hard to deal with it. And if we come to the example of a woman in labor, she's in, and not every woman gets to experience labor. Um, but for those who have, you don't have much time in between the waves of contractions. So it has to be something that is quick and sometimes decisions need to be made, or sometimes it's just, how do you get through one than the next? So the idea behind this is instead of seeing the mountain, which is really a molehill that you see the molehill for what it is. And so this stands for getting really present. And there's a lot of ways to do that. But if we start with the body, that's usually the easiest and best way. What is happening in this moment? Asking ourselves what's happening in this moment, noticing what's happening and noticing it as sensations, not as the story that we're telling ourselves about it or the interpretation of the events. Um, so we can do that anytime. We can do that as a standalone tool. What's happening in this moment? So I can usually tell someone in, in this moment, you are safe. In this moment, everything's okay. Even when they're falling apart, it's, we're falling apart as much because of what happened in the past and that we're still holding on to and as much about what we think might happen in the future. And then it's one thing at a time. So it's presence one thing at a time, which is we get flooded because we're trying to do too much all at once. 
And if we can make it into baby steps, I know this is something that Esther probably does, just doable, simple, simplifying. Um, so one thing at a time, what's the one simple next step? Um, then choosing, making a choice and seeing what choices are available because we freak out when we feel like we're trapped. And feeling trapped is connected with experiences of trauma. And when people are able to find choices and act on them, trauma does not set as deeply into the body if it's a traumatic experience or we can maybe even bypass or avoid it. So what choices are available? How am I going to perceive this situation? How am I going to react to this situation? How am I going to interpret it? How am I, what can I do? What is available to me? So what choices are there? And then owning it. So owning it, taking it into your body, committing to yourself, taking responsibility for your experience because you're not a victim. Um, so that that's the acronym, presence, one thing, choosing, and owning it. Um, so I have a lot of tools that I use, but I think that that's probably the simplest one that you could do in 30 seconds flat that... I may even not explain it to a mom, um, but there'll be a mantra like one thing at a time or what's happening in this moment. You're okay in this moment or own this. Let's do this on your terms. So it might even just be a series of mantras, but when I step back holistically, these are the four steps that have worked for me and for hundreds of my clients and many students and coaching clients as well. Yeah. Riza, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Sure. Um, So at some point I was talking a little bit more about how we approach a very, and I'm saying feminine in energies, not in gender, a very feminine, deep experience with that we are overlaying a more masculine model of preparation and rules and steps and trying to codify it and know how long it's going to take and plan it. And this could be the birth process itself. It could be the postpartum period. It could be mothering or getting to a next stage. And that if we take some of these qualities that Esther described and allow them to emerge, um, these more feminine attributes as such as curiosity and wondering and allowing ourselves to be messy and emotional um, and not know what's going to come next, that that is safe too, that it, that it really is okay to be there. That is where we need to be and we will not be stuck there forever. And I would just add that whether it's our babies or ourselves, when we approach it again from that masculine model of fixing, we're sending the message that something is broken and we're not broken you're emerging. I love that. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you both. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you again next time on the fourth trimester. Risa Tanner has her own website, which is her name, R-E-I-S-E, Risa Tanner, T-A-N-N-E-R.com. On her homepage, there's a box where you can enter your name and your email address and sign up for her newsletter. So I encourage everyone to do that. And you can find out more information about her on her website. The book Riza mentioned, Parenting from the Inside Out, is also available as an audiobook. So parents who are busy can always put that on in the background. Just listen when they're on car rides here and there. 
I know what that's like to be a busy mom, and audiobooks are really helpful that way. You can subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband Ben, daughter Penelope, and baby girl Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now. Hello again, bicycle man. I know you're doing all that you can. I wrote the song, simple and true. I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you. your wheels, you got your gears, you ride around town without any fear, you got your pedals, you got your brakes, you always wear your helmet for safety's sake.